This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of a child, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free, confidential support is available 24-7 through Rain's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online at rain.org. It's November 17th, 2021 at the Mississippi State Penitentiary, also known as Parchman Farm. The prison is in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by miles of flat green scrub in sandy brown farmland. Here, you are cut off from the world. But today, cars queue outside the main entrance off Highway 32. Once IDs are checked, the gate arms lift, letting the cars through. Reporters have come from across the country for a big story. Mississippi's first execution in over nine years is about to take place. The convict is 50-year-old David Neal Cox. In 2010, he was arrested after a brutal home invasion, which resulted in an eight-hour standoff with police and SWAT. He was eventually charged with three accounts of sexual battery, two counts of kidnapping, one count of burglary, and one count of firing into a dwelling. Most serious of all, he was found guilty of shooting and killing his ex-wife, Kim Kirk Cox. David Neal Cox was sentenced to death by a jury in 2012. Now, over a decade later, the time has finally come. David is in the prison canteen. He is tall and lanky, has long graying hair and a wiry beard, and wears a red prison jumpsuit. A tray of food is placed before him. Catfish, hush puppies, french fries, and banana pudding. His final meal. Across from David sits Burl Kane, commissioner of the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Kane is a white-haired man with a square face and large glasses. He now leans across the metal table and urges David to answer his questions. He is pressing the death row inmate for information about a missing person. For all the terrible crimes David has been found guilty of, there are those who believe he is guilty of more. One crime in particular remains agonizingly unresolved. 14 years ago, back in 2007, David's sister-in-law Felicia went missing he was the last person to see her alive. The police have long suspected that David had a hand in her disappearance, but never had the proof to charge him. Time and time again, Commissioner Kane has urged the condemned man to come clean. He's nearly out of time. Still, the commissioner hopes that with his final hour approaching, his prisoner might yet reveal something but David remains impassive, chewing his food slowly, savoring each bite. He stands and begins his final journey. Disappointed, Kane watches on as the prisoner is escorted away. It's just before 6 p.m. David's arms and legs are bound to the bed in the execution chamber. Prison guards watch while medical professionals ensure everything is done to perform the execution effectively and painlessly. 
and Needle is in his arm. David appears to be at ease, unafraid of death. A curtain lifts, revealing a room stuffed with reporters on the other side of the glass. A microphone is lowered, and David makes his final statement to the world. I want my children to know that I love them very much, he says, and that I was a good man at one time. And don't ever read anything but the King James Bible. And I wanna thank the commissioner for being so kind to me. And that's all I gotta say. At 6.12 p.m., a woman wearing a stethoscope declares David Neal Cox dead. With his passing, some of his victims can begin to turn the page on a horrific chapter in their lives. Though others are left haunted by unanswered questions, like the long-suffering family of Felicia Cox. You might think that after the failed attempt to get a confession out of David, the story would be over but it's not. Just 24 hours after the execution, David's attorneys come forward with a startling revelation. They present a handwritten letter to the prosecutors. In his shaky, sloppy scrawl, David finally reveals what he knows about the fate of Felicia Cox. If true, the police will finally be able to close the 14-year-old cold case and Felicia's family can finally get the closure they've so desperately wanted ever since the day she disappeared. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of David Neal Cox, a murderous abuser, a man whose life was plagued with depravity, desperation, and drugs. A man who knew the only escape from his crimes was a death sentence and the measures he took to obtain it. But not only that, this is a story about his victims their families, and the resolution to a mystery they believed would never come. I'm Stephania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. 
Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There have been over 1,500 executions in the United States since the death penalty was reinstated in 1977. David Neal Cox is only the 150th prisoner to choose death, to rescind his appeals and volunteer for execution. The reaction to a state-sanctioned termination sparked mixed reactions from his family, attorneys, and critics who ardently protest against capital punishment. Nevertheless, by the end, David wanted nothing more than to die. It was his final escape from a lifetime of pain. His own and that he inflicted on others. A life that had been spiraling out of control since childhood. David Neal Cox is born on November 30th, 1970 in Mississippi. The precise place of birth is unknown. Some reports say it's somewhere in the state's northeast, at the edge of Appalachia. Not much is known about his family either. It's thought David has siblings two brothers and a sister. But what we do know is not a pretty picture. Not long after David comes along, his 41-year-old mother becomes pregnant again, this time with a girl. For reasons unknown, his father abandons the family before his daughter is born. They are left in dire straits. Money is tight, poverty beckons. His mother works a series of jobs trying to provide for her broken family, and she does so by caring for others. At various times, she's a nursing home cleaner, a school lunch lady, and an aide to vulnerable seniors. On occasion, the local church helps out, paying the Cox's bills when the electricity is shut off. At other times, extended family come to the rescue. Regardless, One day, David and his sister return from school to find their mother standing in the driveway, bags packed. They'd been evicted after falling behind on the rent. With nowhere to go, his mother walks the family 15 miles to a relative's house. They sleep in the chicken house next to the hog and hen enclosures. David's mother does her best to keep their spirits up. Sometimes she drags the mattresses out under the large hole in the ceiling so they can huddle together and look up at the stars. Sadly, the situation for the Coxes doesn't improve. David struggles badly in school and is placed in special education classes. As he reaches adolescence, he begins using drugs. It starts with huffing gasoline. It's a kind of brief escape from anger and loneliness, from himself. It also helps him feel less hungry. At some point in his teenage years, he and his younger sister reconnect with their absent father. Occasionally, they go and stay with him. Tragically, these visits do nothing to alleviate the hardship of their young lives. Quite the opposite. It results in life-changing trauma. During these visits, David witnesses his father sexually abuse his sister. It later turns out that his mother knew too. Apparently fearing her children would be put into foster care, she decided not to report it. The damage done in childhood would no doubt influence the direction of David's life but no one could guess the shocking truth of where David's path would lead. At 19, David leaves home. For a time, he works on a farm. Then at 25, he lands a job as a commercial truck driver. 
This truck and the open road gives him a freedom he'd never had growing up. David loves his job. For a brief moment in his life, things were looking bright, but David's journey is about to take the first of many dark turns. It's 2005 in the Mississippi County of Aberdeen. David Cox is 35 years old, married with three kids. But what started as a happy home life is soon disintegrating. It has been a few years since David first met Kim Kirk, a single mother with a two-year-old daughter named Lindsay. The relationship appeared to be steady and good for them both. In 2000, the couple married and in quick succession, Kim gave birth to two sons by David. But marital bliss and the pride of fatherhood all fade after the job he loves is cruelly snatched away. In 2003, a car rear-ends him, causing a recurrence of an old back problem. Left stricken and in pain following surgery, David becomes addicted to painkillers. He never really recovers. He's unable to continue working and is placed on disability benefits after losing his job. The pills are soon supplanted by methamphetamine, crystal meth. He even cooks it in his house. There are other problems festering at home besides spiraling drug addiction. As the children get older, David and Kim clash over parenting. Domestic strife leads to ugly confrontations, but Kim chooses not to leave him. Not yet, anyway. It's Monday, July 2nd, 2007. Pontotoc County, Mississippi. In a few days' time, 4th of July celebrations will take place as patriotic Americans gather for cookouts and fireworks. But today... Celebrating is not a priority for the extended Cox family. David's brother is currently serving a jail sentence. David's sister-in-law, Felicia, has asked Kim to drive with her over to Oxford Detention Center to visit her husband. However, as Kim pulls up to the house, she notices Felicia's car is gone. Kim knocks on the door and peers inside the windows calling for Felicia, but there is no response. She's nowhere to be seen. Kim returns home, but continues to worry. She keeps trying Felicia's phone, still no answer. When David returns home, Kim is in a state of panic. She tells him she can't find Felicia anywhere. He calms Kim down, saying that he saw Felicia earlier that day. She had come around not long after Kim left, upset because she wasn't sure if Kim was driving her to jail or not. It's probably all just some misunderstanding. Kim presses to know where Felicia went after. David claims he doesn't know. The following day, there's still no sign of her sister-in-law. Kim files a missing persons report. Police arrive and begin by interviewing the couple. David tells them what he told Kim about Felicia showing up at their house. David is shifty, his story vague. Something about the out-of-work meth addict rings alarm bells for the police. They believe he knows more than he's let on. Felicia's 18-year-old daughter, Amber Miss Kelly, tells police she is pregnant with her first child. She insists her mother wouldn't just leave like this without saying anything. 
Suspicions of foul play are increased when Felicia's car is discovered. Her copper-colored Chevrolet Blazer is found deserted on the side of the road. Inside, police find her purse, keys, and some prescription drugs. Police are told that Felicia never goes anywhere without her medication. There's little doubt that something terrible has happened, but searching the car doesn't produce any clues to explain her disappearance. As the last person to see her alive, David remains the prime suspect. But without witnesses or hard evidence to convict him, the police would need a confession. And so Felicia's disappearance will remain a mystery for 14 long years. Perhaps if investigators had caught a lucky break back then, they might have prevented the spiral of unspeakable violence about to unfold. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history, because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. It's July 2009. David and Kim have finally split up. We don't know for certain the reasons why, but in April of that year, apparently the daily struggle became too much. During this four-month-long separation, Kim takes her daughter Lindsay, now aged 11, to live with relatives. It seems the two boys stay with their father. David is upset and openly accuses their mother of cheating on him. Then, something happens that summer that will cause the Cox's world to fall apart. David later claims that Kim had been calling him crying and begging to get back together and that he finally relented but before the girls move back in, Lindsay reveals a horrific secret. She summons the courage to tell her mother about how David had sexually abused her multiple times over the years. He also swore her to secrecy, threatening her, promising he'd kill the whole family if she ever told anyone. Kim, devastated, 
immediately reports her estranged husband to the police, who wastes no time in acting. In August, David Neal Cox is incarcerated on charges of statutory rape, sexual battery, child abuse, and possession of drugs. He's soon locked up in Pontotoc County Jail, where he'll await trial. Lindsay and the Coxes are finally free of David's terror, at least for a time. The arrest enrages David. As he is escorted into the dull gray jail under the harsh fluorescent lights, he shows no sign of remorse or sense of guilt. It seems the only thing on his mind is how he can get revenge. For months and months, his twisted frustration festers. Staring at the white ceiling with his hands behind his head, he tells anyone who will listen. When he gets out, he's going to kill his ex-wife. It's April, 2010. David Cox is set free. For the last nine months, he has been in jail, but somehow he's managed to pay his bond. He's been released on bail, able to go about his business until his trial hearing. Kim knows that with David set loose, the family is in danger. She immediately files a restraining order against him and moves in with her sister, taking her daughter Lindsay and two sons. She hopes this will be enough to keep them out of harm's way. She's tragically mistaken. It's just a few weeks after David's release. Kim is in her car sitting at a traffic intersection when her worst fears are confirmed. Facing her across the intersection is another car. And sat behind the wheel is her estranged husband. A jolt of panic shoots through her, no doubt fearing what he might do. Kim watches the traffic lights. Her foot hovers over the gas ready to punch it. Waiting, David keeps his menacing eyes fixed on her. As the two lock their gaze, he mimes a gun with his hand and pretends to fire at her. The light turns green and Kim speeds away. It's a few days later on May 14th, 2010 in Sherman, Mississippi. Dusk settles over the small suburban town. Streetlights flicker on as the sunlight fades. David pulls up to the trailer home belonging to Kim's sister. Outside, David watches his seven-year-old son happily playing with a basketball shooting hoops. In David's hand is a 40 caliber automatic pistol. He also carries enough ammunition to kill everyone in the family home. The young boy has clocked his father, the look in his eyes, and the gun in his hand. And what unfolds next is truly terrifying. Inside the home, Lindsay, David's 12-year-old stepdaughter, sits on the couch. Kim is running a bath for David's other son, now eight years old. Meanwhile, Kim's sister, Christy, is preparing dinner. The peace is violently shattered when several gunshots tear through the thin mobile home walls. David enters the home and unleashes hell on his family. Christy manages to get away, grabbing the youngest boy as she flees. The eldest boy remains in the trailer, 
locked away out of sight as Kim and Lindsay are taken hostage. In the chaos, David shoots Kim twice, mortally wounding her. Authorities soon arrive, and what unfolds is a tortuous standoff between an incensed and merciless David and police negotiators desperately trying to gain the family's release. As the hours pass, ambulances line the streets in anticipation and helicopters circle overhead. Inside, Kim lies dying, and David continues speaking to the authorities and Kim's relatives over the phone. They hope to reason with him, but David just wants to inflict pain on everyone he can, even openly taunting Kim's anguished parents. After letting them speak to Kim briefly, he says he had hoped to kill them too. He also says he'll kill his hostages if the police get too close. And it gets worse. Over the evening, David repeatedly assaults his stepdaughter. The police continue to negotiate with David, but without success. It's just after 3 a.m. on May the 11th when they finally run out of options. They send in a SWAT team. For several moments, it is total chaos. Incredibly, no one is harmed. Lindsay and her brother are rescued and David is subdued and taken away. Tragically, Kim is found dead having passed away sometime in the night due to loss of blood. It's September, 2012. David is on trial. He pleads guilty to capital murder, sexual battery, burglary, kidnapping, and discharging a firearm at an inhabited dwelling. But he does not show any remorse for what he's done. For days, the jury listens to the evidence presented and witness statements, including testimony from David's stepdaughter, Lindsay, who manages to recount the horrific events of that night in May, 2010. David knows there's no way out. Sitting there in his orange jumpsuit, hands and feet shackled, he knows he will never be a free man again. He's just waiting to learn if he will ever be handed a life sentence or the death penalty. No doubt David is aware that in the state of Mississippi, six executions have been carried out this year alone. It doesn't take the jury long to reach a verdict. David stands. The jury finds him guilty on all counts and sentences him to death by lethal injection. It's 2016. David Neal Cox is an inmate at the Mississippi State Penitentiary commonly called Parchman Farm. David has been locked up here since his trial, but he is no closer to death row than he was when he was sentenced. Being killed by the state is no easy thing. The typical wait for a prisoner on death row is around 200 months, over 16 years. David faces a long wait, made longer by a temporary halt in executions. Mississippi is one of many states now struggling to acquire the lethal cocktail of drugs required to carry out executions. This doesn't bother David. Like many on death row, his date with destiny is also being delayed by a stream of legal appeals conducted by a team of state-appointed lawyers working to save his life. Although his appeals are rebuffed, 
it all takes time. A painfully long time for those who'd like to see him gone and the case closed. It's summer, 2018. Something has fundamentally changed in David. After eight years of imprisonment, it seems he no longer wants to live. In fact, he wants to die more than anything in the world. Sitting in his prison cell, he scribbles a letter in shaky handwriting to the Mississippi Supreme Court. He writes, I seek in earnest to waive all my appeals immediately. I seek to be executed as I do here this day stand on MS death row, a guilty man worthy of death. What has caused this sudden change? Why is David now desperately requesting that the Supreme Court waive his earlier appeals and volunteering to be executed? Religion may play a part. Over the last few years, David has become a devout Anabaptist under old Amish teachings. This pacifist sect teaches anti-violence. Perhaps it's guilt or the promise of a better life to come? He's certainly become morose and complains of the terrible living conditions at the penitentiary. He also now tries to use his religion as constitutional grounds to have his lawyers fired, the lawyers who are fighting to overturn his death sentence. And yet, if it is a crisis of faith that's convinced him, he shows no sign of repentance. Also writing, if I had my perfect way and will about it, I'd ever so gladly dig my dead sarcastic wife up of in whom I very happily and premeditatedly slaughtered on 5-14-2010. David's attitude is erratic and hard to comprehend. In fact, five days after sending this graphic and provocative letter, his lawyers jump into action. They tell the Supreme Court that David is suffering a deep depression and that he has since recanted these statements. But a few months later, David writes to the Supreme Court once more. Again, he begs to be executed, though now apparently full of remorse. I am worthy of death. I seek to bring closure to my victims and family and all I hurt, whether it be emotionally, physically, or both, by the speedy execution of my guilty body. He tells how he now lives in turmoil, suffering a split existence. He describes himself as having two skins. The first skin wants to live without guilt, but skin two seeks death and relief from his guilt. One might rightly question David's mental state through all this. Indeed, the Mississippi Supreme Court set a date for a competency hearing to try and clear things up. Some have speculated that there is a method behind David's apparent madness. His graphic letter might be an attempt to go to the Supreme Court into speeding up his execution. And the second remorseful letter is simply a different tactic, plainly confirming his desire to die and his clarity of mind. Or is there another possibility? Could it be that the victims he feels most sympathy for are not Kim or Lindsay or his sons, but someone else entirely, perhaps victims or relatives of another crime altogether. For a man who claims to be split in two, it's hard to say. 
What we do know is that David Neil Cox is still the prime suspect in the sudden disappearance of his sister-in-law, Felicity Cox, back in July 2007. As it turns out, Felicity's daughter, Amber Miss Kelly, who was just 18 at the time, hasn't given up looking for answers. She has spent the past decade desperately trying to find out what happened to her mother. Since his imprisonment, Amber has written numerous letters to David, each one a plea, begging him to tell her what he knows about her mother's disappearance. But the letters have so far gone unanswered. Could Amber and her mother Felicity be the victims David now feels so sorry for? It's impossible to know. It's February 11th, 2021. After a thorough hearing and an interview with David Cox, the judge presiding over the Union County Circuit Court confidently declares David is of sound mind and clear judgment. His earlier appeals are successfully waived and his request for execution granted. His lawyers are despondent, but David is relieved. He will die sooner rather than later. Regardless of David's willingness to be put to death, this decision comes at a time of great moral debate about capital punishment. Across America, debate rages as to whether death is ever just, and if the preferred method of lethal injection is even humane. In fact, opposition to it has led to numerous pharmaceutical companies banning their products from being used, leading to a massive backlog in executions. Some weeks prior, an Oklahoma prisoner was injected with a cocktail of three drugs. His death was far from peaceful or pain-free and resulted in public outcry. The death penalty action protest group begins circulating a petition requesting that Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves stop David Cox's execution. Regardless of his guilt, they object to the death penalty. They also raise the question as to whether anyone should be permitted to choose their punishment by the state. The petition amasses over four and a half thousand signatures, but fails to collect the required 6,400 for any action to be taken. The state of Mississippi has no qualms continuing with David's execution, using the same drug protocol as Oklahoma. It doesn't seem to bother David either. He's ready to die whatever way it comes. His lawyers put up one last valiant effort to get their client off death row. They appeal the judge's ruling and claim David should not be able to choose to die. But they too are eventually defeated. In fact, the judge dismisses them as David's counsel for acting against his wishes. David's execution date is finally set for November 17, 2021 it'll be the state's first execution since 2012. It's October 26th. The press declares that the monster of Mississippi, David Neil Cox, has only a few weeks left to live. To many, the news will come as a relief, but one person in particular is shocked and upset by the announcement, Amber Miss Kelly daughter of Felicia Cox. With David's death imminent, Amber realizes she might never get answers about her mother's disappearance. 
In her gut, she knows David is the only one who can tell her where her mother is or where her remains are. Amber isn't alone in being upset about the news. Lindsay Kirk, David's stepdaughter, isn't in favor of the decision either. She tells the Mississippi Daily Journal, I don't think it will bring any closure. I don't think I could ever forgive him for what he did. He took a lot from all of us. What she wants is for her stepfather to sit in jail longer and be forced to think about what he did to her, her mother, and her brothers. Although she may be conflicted over his right to life, many might argue, what right does he have to choose to escape his guilty conscience? It's November 17th, 2021 at the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Sitting in the observation room with a slew of reporters are members of the Kirk and Cox family. They anxiously wait for the curtain to open. As it does, they see David lying strapped to a gurney, a needle already in his arm. It's hard to imagine the conflicting thoughts and tortured emotions now felt by David's many victims. For Felicia's daughter, Amber, the time has officially come. It seems she'll never know what really happened to her mother. David utters his final words. He claims to have been a good man once and urges his kids to only read the King James Bible. The drugs are administered, and within a few minutes, David Neal Cox is dead. It's November 19th, just two days after the execution of her uncle. Out of the blue, Amber Miss Kelly receives some startling news. There's been a break in the 2007 cold case regarding her mother. A new lead has come from the most unlikely of sources, a confession from beyond the grave. Back in October, David met with his lawyers and confessed to killing his sister-in-law, Felicia Cox. He also gave them a hand-drawn map of where her body is located. He waived attorney-client privilege and asked them to release the information after his death. It seems David's reasoning for not answering Amber's many letters and not confessing to the authorities sooner was rooted solely in his fear that a new trial might further delay his execution. At a press conference, the Mississippi District Attorney announces the startling revelation and that the police are working together with experts to locate Felicia's body. A few days later, Amber Miss Kelly gets a posthumous letter from David. It's dated November 16th, the day before his death. In his letter, which David dictated to his attorney, he finally apologizes for taking her mother away and admits Felicia's death was senseless and that he prays for her forgiveness. In December, a team of investigators recover the remains of Felicia Cox, right where David said she'd be. David Neal Cox's execution did bring peace to some, but many are conflicted. Kim's father is certainly relieved, but David's sons are unsure, as is Lindsay Kirk, in spite of the pain inflicted on her. 
Kim's sister Christy probably sums it up, saying, I'm just ready for it to be over. As to whether David had any remorse or regret for brutally gunning down his estranged wife and abusing his stepdaughter, for most, the jury is still out. Amazingly, Lindsay retains some sense that David's demons were numerous and complicated. She said, I hate to blame it all on drugs. There had to be some kind of evil in him anyway. The small mercy, if there is any, was that it finally pushed David Cox to confess what he had done to his sister-in-law all those years earlier. Her daughter, for one, is granted some closure on a decade-long trauma. David got the relief he craved, but his case still poses several lingering questions that American law must grapple with. Should a prisoner be able to dictate the terms of his or her punishment? Is the death penalty humane? And who really benefits in the end? The debate will rage on. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet James Hussey, a small-time crook who made big headlines back in 1963. Hussey was part of a gang that pulled off the largest heist that England had ever seen. He was the muscle on a jaw that was supposed to get nobody hurt. However, one of the masked robbers didn't get the memo and badly injured the train driver. Over the next half a century, none of the gang would say who was responsible. It wasn't until 2012, almost 50 years after the robbery, when one of the few surviving thieves made a deathbed confession. Will his dying words finally unmask which one of them broke the rules and attacked the train driver? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Luke Coons. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.